to turn them to John chapter 16 this morning. John chapter 16. We will be studying verses 4 through 15 this morning, but I'm going to back up and read a couple of verses back in chapter 15 as a way to help us set some context. This will be coming from last week's study. Let us hear the word of the Lord together uh, back in verse 18 of chapter 15. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. And if they persecuted you, they will also persecute me. They will also persecute you. Now verse 4 of chapter 16. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. I, will have, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has has is mine, and therefore I have said he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Let me um, throw my support behind a few things that are coming up here. Uh, in the church, uh, uh, I give Amanda the announcements or Jordan the announcements every week, and sometimes I don't know exactly everything goes into the bulletin because we got a lot of things going on here. But we do have the lunch bunch as well going on after church, so if you're interested in that, please see um, Dustin or Deborah. I think they're going to have it at their house this afternoon. It'll be a great time for you guys. I think you'll have a wonderful, wonderful time. But also just as a way to kind of encourage you to be a part of what's happening over the next month, we have the Good Friday service on the 15th, which will be the Friday, of course, right before Easter. We are going to, one thing we haven't put in there yet is we're going to have an Easter morning breakfast. First time we've done that in a couple of years in lieu of Sunday school uh, for Easter morning. So we want you to come for that. Now, yeah, I know what you're thinking. No, we're not asking you to bring food. Well, actually, you may actually have to sign up to bring, you know, buy or purchase something. But we're going to work all those details out here over the next week or two. But it's not going to be something where you're going to have to work really hard to come on Easter morning. But it's going to be a great time for us to fellowship together during Sunday school. And we'll get all those details out to you soon. We have a members meeting in early uh, the week before that, um, and we'll be discussing some pretty cool things there as well. So there's a lot of good things happening over the next month, month and a half, and I hope that you will do your best to be a part of those things. Okay, same as plug over. Um, John chapter 16. We talked about last week the fact, the reality that we face living in a world that hates us. Now, I know that's a hard thing to receive. It's a hard thing to hear. And we, we walked through all of that um, last week. And, but, but the reason Jesus is bringing it to them, and we saw this kind of at the end of our passage, and the end of our study last week, was to remind us that the journey that we're on is not a meaningless journey. It's not a journey that God is completely unaware of the challenges that we face. And so this morning what I want to do is I just want to ask you a question. And just as a way of kind of illustrating where we're going and maybe a way to kind of help us think about this. But have you ever been assigned a task, whether it's been a, um, in life in general, maybe it's a work task, um, or set out on a particular new season of life that you thought was so daunting that it felt like doom, it was doomed from the beginning. Anyone been there? Am I the only one who's ever been there? Please don't lie. Yeah, I mean, just felt like it was doomed from the beginning. A new season of life, you're like, I don't know how this is going to end up at the end of the day. I'm thinking about our middle schoolers for a moment. This is what the illustration came to my mind. Like our middle schoolers. Like there's a new moment when you go into middle school, especially if you're like in public school or in some kind of school setting, 
and you are in elementary school and you go to middle school and you're like, okay, this is a whole new world. Like a lot of new freedoms are coming in. You have to walk the hallways by yourself. Like, am I going to make it into the right classroom? Am I going to say anything if I make it into the wrong classroom? Or am I just going to sit there and pretend that I'm supposed to be here? Um, and then you get to high school and then you're like, wow, I've made a terrible mistake by even walking into this building kind of thing. And then you get into like beyond high school and you, the first thing you think of is like, can, am I going to survive college? Because like I'd have to do my own laundry now and I have to figure out what I'm going to eat by myself. And I got to make like big boy and big girl decisions. And then you realize, wait a minute, that four years eventually ends too. And you get out and you get a job that's depressingly lower salary than you thought it was going to be when you first get out of school. And you're like, I'm not sure I'm going to make it to the end. How am I going to retire on this? And then you decide to get married. And you're like, this is really, really bad. There's no way I'm going to finish this up. And I'm going to have a bunch of kids. Does anyone ever feel that stress? And you just feel like sometimes life just feels doomed from the beginning. Because you get to the point like, okay, in middle school, you're like three years. Okay, I can get through three years. High school, four years. Yeah, I'll... Yeah, I'll get through high school in four years. College, some of us are six or seven years, but we're going to get through the end, right? And then you get married, you're like, wait a minute, there's no shelf life on this. <laughs> it's like, oh, wait a minute, I got to make it to like 70 or 75 or 80 and pr provide for these people who are eating me out of house and home. How is that going to work out? Um, we all feel that way, right? And it's, and it's my experience that we're prone to enter to most of life's new situations, new seasons of life, thinking this can't possibly go well. Now, I say things in jest about life, but some of us are sitting in this room this morning and you're facing some impossible situations. Well, at least temporarily feels impossible. You don't know what's next and it's hard for you to grasp and you're holding on for dear life and you're holding on right now to dear brothers and sisters in this room because you need that because you don't know if you can stand on your own and that's okay that's what the church is for um and i know as we all agree we're not i'm not alone in that over the course of the last couple of chapters this is what we've been seeing jesus work out with his disciples this is called his farewell discourse He's preparing his disciples to answer the larger question, what does life practically look like? What does the mission of God look like to continue on when Jesus is no longer physically with us? When now he's talking about all these different realities to look forward to, but I've got to now think about living life, or at least his disciples in their sense, living life without Jesus physically with us. He's gotten us through this. He's kind of shielded us from all the real difficulties here of life and now you're telling me you're leaving you're going back to the one who sent you as we see in the passage today what am i supposed to do with that so this is what this whole passage over since chapter 14 has been kind of really unpacking for us and jesus comes to this verse 4 here of chapter 16 and he says these words I think are very helpful, at least the second part of it. I did not say these things to you, meaning the world will hate you or that the world's going to, you're going to find all this difficulty in the world from the beginning because I was with you. So he's, he's saying, I know right now you're not prepared to hear this because I've been with you the entire time. But now I've got to kind of set your perspective correctly. Again, we talked about that last week. And again, these things he's talking about, of course, is that hatred of the world, the, the difficulty of being aliens in a foreign land. We even talked about this a little bit in Sunday school this morning through 1 Peter chapter 1. But the fact that we are sojourners in a land that's not our home. And there's a sense in which all believers should always feel like we're not home. We are aliens in a foreign land. And though we are, and I, I didn't say this in class this morning, but you know, there's always this tension among Christians to know what the difference is between being in and of the world and not of the world, right? Like there's a set where we really got boots on the ground here, right? And we got to figure out what that looks like to live faithfully, live convictionally, live with great hope in this very present time. Yet that's the end part, always remembering that we're not of this. That's what Jesus said there in chapter uh, 15, verse 18. They, they, they would accept you if you were of them, but they're not of them because you're of me. I'm the one who chose you out of the world. That's a constant tension a Christian will always face in our life. Now, I set us all up for that this morning before we even get into the main idea because I, I feel like you and I are prone to uh, buy in to this kind of glossy picture 
that we often paint about life in the world. And so we see it in media, we see it, it's always around us. And, and we understand as Christians that we can't bind that glossy picture. It's not always what it seems, right? Like, I think we're all aware of that. We should be aware of that. But as we're in that, we kind of tend to fall into three ditches, okay? We fall into the ditch, perhaps, of spiritual antagonism when we think about the hatred of the world towards us. And so what I mean by that is some Christians kind of wear this hatred of the world as a kind of a badge of honor, right? You've met these guys. Maybe you're that guy and no one's told you that. Right? But that's like we kind of wear it as a badge of honor, and it gives us permission to engage unbelievers, engage the world in a kind of a pugnacious kind of way. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Um, simply gaslighting everyone who disagrees with you because, in the name of Jesus. That's kind of what we see a lot sometimes. I think we see a lot of it right now. I have a hard time squaring that with the life of Jesus. I just really do. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Jesus wasn't frank. It doesn't mean that Jesus wasn't direct. It doesn't even mean that Jesus didn't even debate his, uh, didn't bait his own opponents into debate sometimes, right? So I'm not saying that Jesus himself didn't have his way of engaging people, but who did he do that with primarily? Rarely, rarely the pagans of his world. Most of the religious elite of his world. Mostly his own disciples. It's, like, if you're a disciple, you're like, I don't usually come off looking very good with this guy. I mean, we go back and you see sometimes the, 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 the disciples are like some of the most boneheaded people in, in the New Testament. And so we don't like that, right? It's okay, Jesus, for you to kind of bait those guys out there, but you can't take us on like that. And that, I think sometimes we kind of take the spiritual, the hatred of the world, and we kind of wear it as a badge of honor, and we kind of co-opt it into spiritual antagonism. Sometimes we fall into this category of kind of spiritual paranoia. You know these guys? These people are the ones who think, okay, well, I know how bad the world is. Now I've got to prove it, right? They're always on the search for when some subversive powers always working its way through the world, and we've got to figure these things out. And if you're not really setting yourself into that arena, then you're just being gullible and you're not paying attention to everything that's going on in the world. You met those people? We've got to be careful with those people. And Christians, we've got to be careful with that idea. It doesn't mean that we're not aware of everything that's going on in the world. It doesn't mean that we're not, like I was having a conversation this morning, and one of the reasons Josh prayed specifically about Belarus was I got a very disturbing text from some brothers connected to Belarus this morning. And it's very, very hard for them this morning. Very, very hard. I'll share more about that later this week, perhaps. But we fall into this spiritual paranoia because we're all, if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in this little, like, consumed with, okay, uh, okay, what's, what's not being said? What's not being reported? And there's always some of that, right? I, I know that. You know that. But so sometimes you fall into that ditch. Sometimes you fall into the ditch of spiritual idealism. You know what? If only Jesus was here right now. You know, like, I mean, like, it had to be better when Jesus was there with the disciples. I don't know. Ask the disciples. I don't think the disciples thought it was that easy just because he was there present with them. But we fall into spiritual idealism. Like, hey, if Jesus was here, then this thing, the whole thing would be better. Um, it had to be better if maybe I lived during those times. It would just be better. I, I recognize, I, I point out those ditches because I think sometimes we fall into them and we don't recognize that I don't think that they really embody the full heart, of especially the text we're about to study today. Because there's a word in this study that I think really helps us if we understand what Jesus wants us to understand. Advantage. That Jesus actually thinks you and I the present-day church has an advantage over his disciples of his own day. We have an advantage in a world that is incredibly hostile to us. What does it look like then to have this advantage? And so that's our sermon idea this morning. We must remember the advantage we have in our mission in this world as it continues through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. I'll say that again. We must remember the advantage... Big word, central word of our study this morning. We have in our admission in this world as it continues through the empowering work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, as we've been studying this last couple of chapters, I see two advantages. One we're going to study specifically from this passage this morning, but one that's 
we've kind of been seeing all along. I'm going to call this one the implicit advantage, and then we'll talk a little bit later in this passage, the explicit advantage. I wonder if we're aware of the implicit advantage we have, and namely it's this, that the mission of God has been unfolding through the work of the triune God since the very beginning. Are you aware of that? Do you keep yourself aware of that reality? All right. This is, I just want to cover this briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because this is kind of looking at this from a very high level. But again, the mission of God has been unfolding and has been sustained through the work of the triune God, in the word there, from the beginning. Yet the mission of God from the beginning is the work of a God, a Godhead, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, why do I want you to notice that? Because in this passage, especially these last couple of chapters, it is just chock full of the wonderful work of the Father, the wonderful work of the Son, and now the wonderful work of the Holy Spirit. To grasp the implicit advantage we have as God's people in this present moment, in the moment that has led all the way up to this moment that you and I live in, is to understand that the root of the hostility the world has for us is rooted in the fact that we saw last week, right, They don't know the Father. Now, why is that important for us to pay attention to? Because not knowing the Father is the root of why the work of redemption even exists. It's why God went to work. Now, we know that that work of redemption was prior to the creation of the world. We'll see that in Ephesians Ephesians 1 here in a minute. But to understand all of this is to know that implicitly behind everything we have today as God's people is to know that we have seen, we have heard, we have been told the wonderful news of God's redeeming work through the the world, in the world, since the garden. God's been hard at work at this reality for us. He's been unfolding it all the way up and through Jesus, and now from Jesus through the Holy Spirit to the day. And so to not know the Father for this world around us is to not know what He's about. And to not know what He is doing... And to not know why he has created the world and how he established his relationship with people. Again, isn't this not the, is this not the reality of why the world's hostile against God? Is they just don't see it. They don't understand it. They don't know it. They don't want it. They don't want him. And then it's to not know the Father is to not know Jesus. And to not know Jesus is not to understand his mission. And to not to know, understand Jesus' mission is to miss the entirety of the gospel message and the historic work of redemption that God's been undertaking since that insurrection in the garden. So I I pay attention to this implicit advantage advantage we have, everything that we've been um, studying in John, particularly these last couple of chapters, because we are, if we're not careful, so prone to forget that. We're so prone to forget, I am, and listen, I'm going to speak on it for myself, I'm so prone to forget Ephesians 1. Chapter 3, I'm chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose with which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. I could keep on reading. But it's right there. That he, in him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. So I can talk to you about the spirit, which is what we're going to do. That's the explicit advantage that Jesus is speaking on here. But I think we need to make sure that we understand You can't get the explicit reality and this explicit understanding of the Holy Spirit if you don't know the implicit reality of everything that goes on behind that. And that's right here in Ephesians chapter 3. I mean, chapter 1, excuse me, verse 3 through 10 or 12 there. Friends, this is a huge watershed for the church. Why? Because we do know the Father. We do know and trust in the Son that He has sent. 
We do know that the mission of God is not some parenthesis in history, but it is the very lifeblood of all that God is doing in the world. And thus it reminds us even now as we cling, sometimes very, in a very difficult way, we cling to the promises of God. And we do know that this is not just a one-dimensional gospel that we hold on to, but it's a gospel that has the entirety of the Godhead behind it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not one-dimensional in this. We're not Unitarians where we just, like, it's just about Jesus, and we're not just Unitarians, like, it's just about the Spirit, but we are full gospel people who believe the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit architected this whole work of redemption from the beginning. Amen? It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Now, that's the implicit advantage. Let's talk about now, for the rest of our time, the explicit advantage. This is where we're going to spend most of our time. Because the explicit advantage, then, after we understand the implicit advantage, I know, you're spinning, right? We understand that the mission of God will continue, both for the disciples, but also in His church today, through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, as He assures us that we will make it to the end. Friend, don't doubt that. Brothers and sisters, don't doubt that. No matter what fears are laid upon your shoulders this week, whatever those fears may be and wherever they come from, like you have full assurance that because Christ has and because what God has been doing since the beginning and now because of the work of the Holy Spirit that is at work right now through His power and presence, you and I can be assured that we're going to make it all the way home. All the way home. There's much we can say about the Holy Spirit and His work. And I certainly can't unpack everything the Holy Spirit is here in this text. And neither does this text even try to unpack all that the Holy Spirit is. But I do think it's important for us to at least lay out some, some guardrails. Because sometimes talk about the Holy Spirit can go a lot of wonky directions in the church. And we want to make sure that we say clearly what and who the Holy Spirit is. And namely who the Holy Spirit is. Because the Holy Spirit, number one, is not a force. It's not an entity. This is not Star Wars. This is not dark side and light side. This is not yin and yang, right? He's not a spiritual reality in terms of a force, but he is a person, a person of the Godhead. He is the third person of this Trinity. And we should not treat the Spirit as if he is this unknowable force like that of what we see in Star Wars, that we got to wield the power of the force. When Christians treat the Holy Spirit in such ways, we are... We are falling prey to worldly ways about engaging through the Holy Spirit. Now, we can know the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that in the rest of this passage. Second thing I want us to notice here is that the Spirit is not reckless, and the Spirit's not haphazard. I think sometimes that's another way in which we kind of do disservice to the Holy Spirit is that in His work we think that the Holy Spirit, because He can, He can sweep in and He can do powerful things and He can do things where we and I don't expect that somehow or another He's acting in some reckless way, in some haphazard way. And though therefore when we try to get into the Spirit, as some people will say, we will do the same thing. And that's not true either. The church should never be reckless. The church should never be haphazard. We should be thoughtful and engaged and, and intentional in the way that we do things, knowing that we have the Holy Spirit behind us, in us, working through us. So we're not reckless in our spiritual mission here, Grace. We want to be intentional, deliberative. And then that then leads us to the third point, which will then set us up for the rest of this text, but is that, look, the Spirit works both in ordinary and extraordinary ways, right? The Spirit works in both ordinary and extraordinary ways. And we should put most of our time and interest in the ordinary ways the Holy Spirit works, which is what we're seeing in this passage. We should put most of our confidence in the regular way the Holy Spirit works. Of course the Holy Spirit works in ways in kings and kingdoms and in princes and, 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 and magistrates, and He works in ways that you and I can't see. I've heard numerous reports of just wonderful spiritual realities that perhaps are happening that's been going on with the conflict over in, the, in Europe right now. And I praise God that the Spirit can and should and will work in extraordinary ways. But for you and I, we can pray and we can ask and we can petition the God of the universe to work in these realities. And we should. And that's why we pray on Wednesday nights as a church. But we also need to put our confidence in the regular means of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
So what is the regular means? What is the ordinary means? What is the normal work of the Holy Spirit in the world and through the church? You can divide this passage into two really big sections, right? First, the, the, we'll see here in verses 8 through 11, the Spirit's work in the world, and then we'll see from 12 through 15, the Spirit's work in the church. What is the Spirit's work in the world? Well, it says there very clearly in verse 8 through 11, He comes and He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, this word convict is an interesting word. I won't subject you to the ridiculous nature of the debate that exists among commentators about what this range of meaning is, but what would suffice it to say the word convict can, has two different sides. It can mean to reprove, reprove meaning confronting sin in a person or in a group or in a nation or whatever, and then convict can also mean to convince, to expose a previously unknown reality, a previously unknown truth. And depending on who you're listening to and who you're reading, usually people draw harder lines here than I personally think is necessary because I think we can actually see both of them in play here. I don't know that the... I don't know that there's a... that we need to divorce ourselves from one option or the other. The option of rebuking or reproving versus convincing. I don't know that either one of them should be disregarded. And I hope I'll be able to show you that a little bit this morning. Because I think we see in this passage... Verses 9 through 11, he's both rebuking otherwise rebellious men and women, excuse me, rebellious men and women of their condition and is convincing them of the true nature of what salvation is. I think that's what the work of the Spirit's always doing in the world. Convicting the world of sin, whether or not it's hiding, like it says in Romans chapter 1, hiding from that, sticking their heads in the sand, doesn't want to really deal with that rejecting God, but this is what the Spirit's doing. He's still going to convict the world of sin. He's going to still judge the world because of their sin. But he's also going to be convincing otherwise rebellious people to come to salvation, to come to redemption. Let's just look at these verses together just for a moment here. Verse 9 says, um, Concerning sin, they, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, verse 10, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is judged. What does he mean by there? Exposes sin, right? Verse 9 is about exposing sin. They don't believe in me, and they're just exposing sin. He just wants to show them that you are what you are because of the fall, because of your rebellion against me, and that he's exposing the reality of sin in the world. And not namely sinful behavior first, but this reality of a sinful heart. He's also establishing to the world what righteousness is needed to overcome that sin and that their righteousness is never going to be enough and that God himself through his son Jesus was sent to be a righteous standard for us and to give his life as the righteous standard for us and that he will judge the world in their sin you and I will be judged for one of two things we will either be judged for our failure for righteousness and therefore falling into sin and we will be condemned for that or we will be judged based on the righteousness of Christ. There is no other way around it. That's how it works. And so the fact that I don't think you need to make a hard line distinction between these two ideas about what conviction means, I think is very true here. I think the Spirit's always working that way. Regardless if a believer or an unbeliever ever comes to know Christ, doesn't mean that they will not be condemned in their sin. Every knee will bow and every tongue will she confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King, right? This is what it is. But at the same time, it's through those means and through the preaching of God's people and the declaration of God's people that what? God uses that means to save people. So then we see throughout the scriptures that a rebuking work of the Spirit that simply exposes sin and the broken nature of the world that is at odds with their Creator. But we also see that the Spirit is at work in, the, in our work to preach the gospel. You see this in Acts 2, right? This is the, one of the great first examples of this when the Holy Spirit finally descends upon um, the church. I won't go into detail, but you know the story well probably. I hope you do. 
But Acts 2 is when the Spirit descends upon the church there as they're praying and worshiping there in that room. And people are and they're starting to speak all these different languages. Glossolalia, we know this to be just languages of the earth and languages of other ethnic people and, and whatnot. And, and here the, and the idea there, of course, is that the Spirit has landed and the gospel's for everybody. And everybody needs to repent and believe. Now we go, we know that the people in that crowd, what did they do? What was their reception of this? They look around, they're like, wait a minute, something fishy is going on here. They didn't like this unholy spectacle. And what they do? They determined that these people were just drunk and heathens. They, look, they didn't believe Jesus and his earthly ministry, so why would they believe the work of the Spirit either? Right? But then the Spirit, through pre, uh, Peter's preaching for the rest of the passage, is doing what? Doing something magnificent. Peter preaches and he says, you don't know what you're talking about. You have no idea what's unfolding here in front of you. And it's through Peter's preaching that he exposes the reality of sin in their life. He exposes the reality of their redemption, of their rebellion. He exposes the reality that they need the righteousness of Christ only for to be saved. And he exposes the reality that they must repent and believe this. And what happens? Well, we do know that some walked away even hardened than they were before. I mean, that's just reality, right? But we also know that through that message, some have their hearts opened, and they are therefore converted to know Christ. I hope the application is clear for you and I. That the way the Spirit works in the world is to our advantage. What it does is it means the work of conversion is not my work to do. It's not your work to do. You can convert nobody. You can beg God for their conversion, and you should. You can pray for their conversion. You can share the gospel to your blue in the face and pray that the Holy Spirit works for their conversion, but it's simply our work to declare, to preach, to share, to witness to the work of Christ. And friends, just step for a bite for a second and just say, wow, isn't this amazingly freeing for us? I have never once been less determined to preach the gospel by that truth. In fact, I've been more bold to do so. I'll tell you what, what deflates my ability to preach the gospel, when I'm responsible for the results. If I'm responsible for the results, then you know what that does for me? That makes me not want to do it. Because I see my failure written all over that. That's not what we find in Scripture. But here's the wonderful thing about that is it doesn't matter how we feel about our work of being faithful to declaring the gospel. Our work is important. God uses human agency for his redeeming purposes. Do you know that in the New Testament, everything that's at least been revealed in the New Testament, every conversion in the New Testament had some level, some human agent that God used to preach the gospel to someone? Every one of them. This is what God does. He sends you and I out into the world to build relationships, to build trusting relationships, to be invested in people's lives so that we can bring the good news of the gospel to them. And that every conversion that we want to see happen will start with, one, your prayer for their soul, and two, your faithfulness to take the gospel to them. It's how it works. It's how it's always worked. I love James Boyce, a great pastor from... Uh, uh, 10th Prez up in Philadelphia. He says, this is God's way. By the power of his spirit working through human channels like you and me, this is God's way, he says. He, he asks this question, are you his instrument? It's a great question for us to ask ourselves. Are we his instrument? You can be, he says. Draw near to him. Ask him to cleanse you. Allow him to make, you, make of you an unobstructed channel for his grace. This is what we're called to do. So the work of the Spirit in the world is to our advantage because what it does is, is it actually frees us in our work of evangelism. It, it allows us to go in unencumbered, worried about the results of what will happen, but trusting that the Spirit will take our humble offering. And it may be a very humble offering that you offer in your, your evangelistic efforts, but God will use it. God will use it. But it's not just 
the Spirit's work in the world that we need to be that's to our advantage. It's to our advantage that the Spirit's work in the church. And that's what he says in verse 12 through 15, the remainder of our time together. That the Spirit, he says there in verse 12, will guide you into the truth. Right? I have many things to say to you, but I, you cannot bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears from me, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. There's more to come, Jesus says. Now, I take this to mean, like most people, most uh, commentators, most of our uh, brother pastors and theologians who's gone before us, to mean that this is the Spirit authoring the Scriptures, specifically the New Testament Scriptures. It's not the first time we've seen this alluded to. Jesus says to his disciples in chapter 15, I will send the Spirit and he will teach you all things. He's setting them up for the fact that it's not over with yet. There's more to know. There's more to come. And so he uses those apostolic witness, that apostolic office of the 12 apostles. Well, if he's, yeah, 12 apostles there. And they are there to be used as conduits for which God will then give us the word of God that we have and we rest in today. So this is what we're talking about again going back to Boyce found him very helpful this week it is the word the that is important in this passage the truth he will guide you into all the truth the truth it is the word the and it becomes before truth when we understand this, we see that it is not just some general idea of truth that the Holy Spirit is, is said to be coming to guide the apostles, but rather into all the truth, that is, into a definite body of material centering on Christ. Wow, right? A definite body of material centered on Christ. This, we recognize, is nothing other than the New Testament. So the promise is that the Holy Spirit would be the vehicle of a new revelation through those specifically commissioned to that ministry. So we don't believe that the Bible is continually open. We don't believe in open revelation, meaning there's going to be more stuff added to this. We know this. This is something that we affirm very strongly with the, the historic church. But he's saying that that's one of the works of the ministry, is that the, the Spirit's guiding us into truth. And he did so primarily through the work of the apostles to give us this book right here, this collection in the New Testament specifically. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I think it means a couple of things. One is that though the Holy Spirit works in many inspiring ways, the primary work of the Holy Spirit is to work through and for believers through what? God's Word. You want to know the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've got to be connected to God's Word. The Holy Spirit certainly leads. He inspires. He directs our steps. He directs our actions. He works in ways, but in ways we don't understand, but they are in, in no way on the same level as what we find in the scriptures. They have stood the test of time and they will, no matter what ploys the world throws at us, they will stand the test of time to the end. Therefore, because that's the reality, because his primary work is through the scriptures, God's people are called to be hemmed in by the scriptures and not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, every wind of philosophy, every wind of idea. That's what we find in Colossians chapter 2. Our men's group's been studying that, our DNA group. And it's, we shouldn't be thrown away by these things. And it's very dangerous when Christians do this and allow themselves to be tossed to and fro by these ideas. Be very, very careful what you inoculate as Christian when it very well could be very much against what Scripture has to say in the end. Be careful, friends. This means we must preach what the Scriptures expressly teach and command and seek not to ever extrapolate what the Bible does not expressly teach, right? You know what I'm saying? We've got to be careful with this. This is a very dangerous place. And I know it's always difficult. It's hard for us to know what might be a legitimate range for us to press into. And I, and, I, and I get that. But I think it's very important that we are very clear that, that, that much of the conflict that exists among believers, I think, especially in this present moment, is on second-tier, second-category issues that are over-extrapolated teachings of the Bible. And so I want to be careful with that. I can see a lot of different things. I can use a lot of different examples about that. I, I, will, I will refrain from that at this moment just for terms of time. 
But it's also why we need to be very careful about what we mean by being a confessional church. We are a confessional church of grace. I mean, we hold to certain confessions and bodies of, 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 of material about the Christian faith. The New Hampshire Confession is our formal one here at Grace. We hold broadly to the 1689 Confession. Um, but we hold them, at least with some sense, an open hand. Because we know that they serve the Scriptures. They don't stand above the Scriptures. Right? They serve the Scriptures. They don't stand above the Scriptures. And so we be careful that we don't just throw them out willy-nilly because there's some historical stuff there that's really wonderful and it helps us understand what the church has been working through and debating over the centuries. And it's important that we... Again, I'm un, I am un, um, unapologetically committed to being a confessional, creedal Christian. Right? The, the, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these are all wonderful things that hint us into what is actually Christian. We need to be that way, but we need to be careful we don't take those things and we then make them the, the, the truth, right? That the, this, all it is trying to do is synthesize what we believe is essential in the Scriptures. We can talk about that more another time. But there's one more brief thought about the Holy Spirit that I do not want us to pass over here at the end of chapter 15 and chapter 14. I'm sorry, in verse 14 and verse 15. And it's a big one. Look what it says. He, verse 14, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, Holy Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. What's Jesus saying there? Everything that the Holy Spirit does in the church is to act as a megaphone, as a floodlight to the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everything that the Holy Spirit does is not to magnify His works. This is what we find sometimes in some churches, is that they kind of make the Holy Spirit and it becomes this like fanatical kind of thing. But no, it's the Holy Spirit does never, makes, never brings attention to the, to the extraordinary things He does. He brings attention to the fact that the glory of God. When we don't understand that, what we do is we end up turning the Holy Spirit into a, a, a pony tricks. Dog and pony show. No, he's a megaphone. He's a floodlight for the church. And he's then telling us, because he is that, and he's working in us, and because the Holy Spirit is indwelt in us, that means, by nature, and this is where we're going to land a plane, you and I are the same, are to do the same. You and I are called to go and be megaphones and floodlights to the glory of God. Why? Because that's the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the reason we got the scriptures. The scriptures aren't God, but they are the Holy Spirit-driven text that is given, given to God's Word so that we would see God, to know God, to trust God in everything that He is. So let's go back to this word advantage for a second. Because this is where we want to land a plane. We must remember our advantage. Namely, the advantage we have of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that is guiding us in the truth, that he's doing the work in the world so that our work becomes meaningful work in the world through our evangelism and our discipleship. We can go do those things and do them with a whole heart. And because of that advantage, I have two main ideas that I want to just finish up with before we land the plane. One, we must live and rest within that advantage. We must live and rest within that advantage. And what do I mean by that? It's time to show the world, I mean right now, that our peace is not preoccupied with the temporal peace of the world. Dear Christian, your peace is not preoccupied with the temporal peace initiatives of the world. We are not a people without hope right now. The events of the last 5, 10, 100, 200 years have no doubt contributed to an extraordinary, especially the last five years, extraordinary rise of loneliness, isolation, anxiety, depression, and even in some cases, unfortunately, people taking their own lives. And Christians must be very careful that we point only to the one who remedies these things. He, Jesus, is the one who remedies these things. And we must be very careful. Brothers, I have a deep burden for this. 
and sisters, I have a deep burden for this, not to be involved in anything so much that it becomes a divisive involvement in the world's speculations and philosophies. I've already kind of alluded to this before in earlier in this message. And not to seek to remedy that which we, will, what we think will come um, that will help us be free from the course of powers of the world. Does that make sense? Let me say that again. Not to remedy what we think will come if we are free from the coercive powers of the world. In other words, it's not my job, it's not your job, to fix everything. We speak for truth, and we certainly want to see the world changed by truth, and we should try to do that as much as we are able to do so. Rather, we are a people, though, who live above these things, though maybe in a frail way, no doubt, but we're always bringing our own anxieties. We're always bringing our own loneliness. We're always bringing our own depression into the church, into Christ. Why? Because he's the only one who can handle it. He's the only one who can handle it. No other way around it. You know, I've been in counseling ministry on and off for quite a while now. And, and depression and anxiety and loneliness and isolation, it's a real thing. I have heart-wrenching conversations with people almost on a weekly basis about the anxiety that they're carrying and the loneliness that they're feeling, the isolation that they're feeling. And let me just tell you something, friend, and just in case that you are wondering that this started two years in 2020, it didn't. It didn't. I think COVID exposed it, but I don't think it started two years ago. That's why I think it's an opportunity for the church. To see it for what it really is. Could COVID be a gift for the church? I don't know. But here's what I believe with all my heart. As we see all the things unfolding in the East, as we see all the things that are unfolding in our own land here, it's an opportunity for us to, 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 to press into the anxieties, press into the, the depressions, press into the, to the spec, uh, into the world that we are living in so that we can show them Jesus. I've said this a million times, and I'll probably say it a million times again as your pastor. Christian, and I'm saying this to me as much as anyone else, Confessing believers who assume to have all of the answers to remedy all the world's problems and only take a cursory glance at the cross are not helpful to the mission of God. Christians who think they have all the answers to the world's problems while only taking a cursory glance at the cross are not helpful to the mission of God. Of God. And I hope and I pray if that's where you are, heck, I want to root these things out of my own life because I know I can fall into them as easy as anyone. That God would expose that. He would allow me, allow you to enter into people's hurt and pain. Or better yet, to expose my own hurt and pain to you in a way that we can walk together and we can rest in the person and work of Jesus who is the only remedy for those things. The second thing, and this is where we will finish, we must not only live and rest within this advantage, we must also advance forward with this advantage. We must advance forward with this advantage. And two thoughts. It's time for boldness. It's time for boldness. I, I believe the American church has been a little too weak. It's time for boldness. It's time to preach the gospel. It's time to show that even with war and rumors of war, that these things are instruments for God. It's time that we see these as ways to expose the sin and rebellion and the fears and all the things that, that consume people's hearts so that they give us an opportunity to show something profoundly better. seems to me that God brings these seasons of life, at least in part, because he, 
wishes to renew the moral and spiritual compass of people in the world. This is what the Spirit does. He'll drive people through wars and rumors of wars, disease and all other things so that they drive them to the point that they have nothing else but to turn and bend a knee to Jesus. And where is the church at? Where would the church be when these people are such in place of despair? Remember what I said earlier? There's not one indication in the New Testament where one person was converted without God using a human agent to do it. Where are we going to be? How? This is how God has operated in Israel throughout the Old Testament. This is how God operates in this church in the past and in the church today. Preach the gospel always and only. Always and only. It's time to be a megaphone. It's time to be a flood eye. Amen? It's time. I'll end it with a, with a, a thought that a friend of mine shared with me this week. Man, it really, he, he was, it, was, it was some tweet he saw, but I just, man, it really hit me. Here, as you think about our life in this world, imagine, just for a moment, if you will, just, just go with me on this. Here's what he says. If a, our Christian view of end times and therefore current times was centered on preparing for Christ rather than the Antichrist. Shouldn't that be the, our eschatology, our end times view? That we're preparing for Christ, not for Antichrist? What if in our view of end times and current times, we centered on the mark of the lamb, not the mark of the beast? What if we as Christian, in our Christian view of end times and therefore current times, we centered all of our life on preparing for the redeeming of the earth rather than the escaping from it? What if we centered all our hope on Christ rather than the fear that is so prevalent everywhere we look? What if indeed, right? What if Indeed. Who's going to start that? The church, right? The Lord's Supper, guys, as we finish up. We take it every week because what, what is it? Is it not a floodlight? Is it not a megaphone to the hope of a people who are in this world but not of it? Amen? God, help us this morning as we finish. And thank you for your word. Thank you for John. Thank you for this, this, this timeless word that has been given to your church and we can return to over and over and over again in our times of need. God, help us now as we come to this table and God, be, be, be changed by it. Continually immersed in the grace of God, the grace of Jesus, God, as your people. And reminded that as the world falls into utter chaos and destruction and the fears and are controlled by fears and, and difficulties, God, we are people who are living in it. We are not of it. And you are with your people. And you're with us to the end. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.